Hello everyone, this is Lisa Fields, the founder and president of the Jude 3 Project, and I just want to take this time to personally thank all of our monthly supporters. We could not do what we do without giving from people like you. I greatly, greatly appreciate it. And if you're not a monthly supporter and you would like to become one, you can go to jude3project.org and hit the donate tab and sign up. We are grateful for you and we hope you enjoy today's new episode. God bless. Hello, welcome to the Jew 3 Project podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew 3 Project. Thank you for watching another episode of the Jude 3 Project podcast. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jude 3 Project. And that today I'm joined by a very special guest, my friend, Miss Corey Porter. Welcome, Corey. How are you doing today? Hey, friend. How are you doing? I'm good. Good to have you on the podcast. Um, for those who don't know who you are, give them a little bit of background. Yeah, just a little bit about my background. So I'm in Princeton, New Jersey, and here I'm a campus minister at Princeton University. I'm also finishing a master's in, at Princeton Theological Seminary, uh, a master's in public administration as well as religion. That's awesome. And I talk to Corey all the time, and usually the conversations aren't serious, so it's hard for me to be serious at this time, but I'm going to try try my best. We're talking about... Um, we're going to be talking about Corey's testimony today, but one of the reasons that I wanted her to be on the podcast is because I think it's important for us as believers to be open about our testimonies. The scripture says we overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony and our testimonies are so vital. And sometimes we don't have the confidence or courage to share our testimonies, but it in addition to that, just the testimonies bring a level of relatability when we're trying to evangelize. So I think it's important that we we freely tell our stories and our testimonies. Was it ever a time, Corey, for you that it was hard for you to share your testimony? Um, for some reason, I think it it never was a time that I can recall that was difficult to share what the Lord has done in my life. And it's probably because I believe that he had freed me from all the things that he had taken me from. So I think if I was um, in a place where I felt guilt or I felt shame or I felt some type of condemnation still, I think it would be more difficult to share some of the things that um, God has brought me from. But I think at the moment when you, um, or for me, it was a moment um, at the moment where I felt Christ's presence and I felt his peace, that kind of trumps what the world kind of calls you to think about yourself. It almost becomes a spiritual experience where you just want to go out and you want to tell everybody um, the sweetness and the goodness of the Lord. And so you're not really thinking about self at that moment. You're more trying to articulate the message of your of the hope that you have now and this amazing God that you are called to serve. So I don't know of a specific time yeah, where it was difficult for me to share, but I can imagine um, that it can be difficult for people depending on their testimony, um, sharing certain aspects of it. Yeah, definitely. And when I first heard your testimony, I was like, oh, wow, that's a lot. Um, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> you definitely don't look like what you've been through. Um, <laughs> we're going to be serious. But for those, um, obviously, you've shared your testimony a number of times in, in public forums, but um just tell kind of like the your first encounter with with the gospel message. 
Yeah. I mean, I think I first encounter, I'm from Mississippi. So my first encounter was probably at a super early age, but the first age I can remember was probably around six or seven. Um, being from Mississippi, this old Mississippi black church, I think was built like a couple months after slavery. So it has just that um, real family field. Everybody's kin to everybody. Um, and then I remember my grandmother had this particular pew that she would always have right on the second row. Um, and the pastor would have like, you know, the hooping and the hollering and he could tune up and be able to hoop. And that was just really cool. I remember as a little kid kind of admiring his gravitas in the pulpit. Um, but I also remember I was a tomboy. And so church was like really difficult for me because I would have to wear dresses and my mom would put me like in these stockings and I just couldn't wait to get out of them in those little ugly like case shoes that they would put us in and little girls. But I remember click clacking down the aisle um, and kind of having on your my left was like the motherboard and these big white hats and they're all white dress. And then on my right would be the deacons and they would be dressed up nice um, and we would sit right behind them. Um, and I just remember, and I've shared this often, but it is true. I just remember uh, my grandmother's authentic worship. She has such a true worship about her. Um, again, Black woman in the South of Mississippi coming from what she's come from um, and just being a real matriarch of my family. I think she took her faith so very seriously um, on Sunday, but also throughout the week that I knew that when she came to the church on Sunday, she came to release something, if, if you will. And so just sitting beside her and kind of having that warmth of a grandmother expressing her worship out to God um, Sunday after Sunday, I don't know. I think I inherited something in that way of just seeing a sincere faith. Um, and she would have groans. Uh, the best way I can explain it is just groans. And um, and when she was articulating something, uh, she would articulate the name of Jesus that I could understand. Um, I think, again, as a kid sitting right next to your grandmother and kind of feeling her breath, feeling her body get into worship and pour her, her heart out to a God that she desperately believed in and put her hope and her faith in. I think that was probably my first experience was like, OK, there's something here that is different than I'm experiencing in other spaces, but yet I can't see him and I can't see the object of her hope, but she knew that he was real. And so in that moment, there was something that she always does, which is call out the name of Jesus. And she would say it over and over and over again. And it just brought peace to her. Um, she said at the height of her testimony, of her, of, of her worship, but she also said it to calm herself down. And it was just like this exchange she was having with someone that I, I couldn't see at the moment. And so she would just say, Jesus, 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 and that's what really stuck out to me. I think um, my first experience with Christianity and authentic worship was in the house of, of God. And even though you had that experience, you kind of got off track um, in, in your own personal growth, yeah. um, in your, your own life. Um, tell us kind of like what that looked like for you during your, your high school years. Yeah, I mean, and this is really interesting, right? Because I think I was impressionable and I think I was looking for some type of rest or some type of place to feel like, to feel accepted and to feel loved. And I say this time and time again, if the church doesn't disciple, if the church doesn't reach out, then the world will. And I found my place in the world. I found my place amongst um, drug dealers, amongst people who were um, either high school dropouts or, you know, um, ex-felons. And those were people who celebrate me. They were people who celebrated maybe not the best things in me, but they were true to be friends and be a community that I was looking for. And I always knew my position and my place with them. And so early on, um, I think the, the, the unraveling came when I kept losing people, to be honest. So I lost my grandmother. She was only 59 years old. And then I lost my um, my stepdad to, um, to HIV that later became AIDS. 
And again, in Mississippi in the 90s, that was like a death warrant for him. So I think losing people back to back to back, um, I think really created this void that I needed someone near me and I need those people to be my people that I could hold on to. And so when you have that deep void in you, I think you will do anything to fill it. And you just continuously put yourself around people who will be willing to give it at whatever expense that that is. Again, I chose to be with those people. I love those people dearly. Even to today, I des- I desperately want them to know the gospel and know um, Christ and what Christ can do for them in their lives and transform it. Um, but at that moment, I wasn't realizing that that was probably not the best path. And so some of the things I probably got involved in um, at too young of an age were drugs, um, and at first, again, it started in an interesting way, um, which wasn't like me just going out to seek drugs, right? It was starting with that group and then trying to experience what they were experiencing. Um, and because one of the guys I was dating was a drug dealer at the time, he was trying to um, have a relationship with me um, sexually that was a little bit more um, exploratory. And so the drugs that we got on were more drugs to enhance the sex life. Um, but again, because the age difference was there and I was so young, I think it was very difficult for me to realize my own body, to realize what I was doing. And so I just took drugs to be able to hang with a grown man. Um, so looking back on that, obviously I have a different perspective, but at that moment, it was what I needed to do in order to feel accepted and feel loved. And I felt like at the moment that was a small price to pray in order to feel yeah cared for. And I love that you said that those actions came from a place of genuinely searching for acceptance, for identity, Uh, because I think oftentimes when people engage with people with lost people or trying to evangelize, they look down on people as if like they're, you know, outside or doing something that is totally, um, that's crazy out of this desire just to do wrong. And it and many times people are looking for acceptance, validation, identity. Yeah. I always say people are looking for those. Um, you you have to identify what the pain point is. And so I, I've had the five P's, personhood, um, uh, personhood, peace, uh, protection, power. And um, uh, I forgot my fifth one. <laughs> but- <laughs> whatever it is it's a powerful (laughs) piece but I've said it on the uh, previous episode and so you have to identify when people are 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 saying hey I'm not a Christian or I'm not like that's not me what are what is the pain point and how does the gospel meet that point um in their life um kind of what drew you drew you to Christ and drew you away from the life you were you were in well, yeah, well, just back to your point about the pain before I answer that. I mean, yeah, I remember when I was thought I was pregnant and I was going to go get an abortion. And when I was at the clinic and they were testing to see whether or not I was pregnant, I remember I ended up going to like a plan pregnancy, um, not Planned Parenthood, but like more of a, a Christian space that kind of like tests for you. I didn't know they were Christian, to be honest, but the tests were free. And so when I went there and I was waiting to hear whether or not I was um, I had test positive or negative for the for a baby, um, I remember her asking me, would you get an abortion? And I was like, yes, I'm most definitely going to be getting an abortion if I'm I'm 16 years old. And she kind of looked at me and, and like, you know, furrowed her brow and then showed me this story. I think it's called The Silent Scream and just left me in a room. No explanation, no conversation. And was just like, 
now are you still going to get abortion? And I was like, yes, I most certainly am still going to get abortion. I just won't be seeing whatever comes out of me. And it's, it's a hard truth. But the point was she didn't minister to my pain. What she did was just put this bandaid over it and hope that it would like shock me into the reality. But when you're in despair like that, like you can't just throw things at people and hope that they stick, but you got to take time to minister to that person's heart and that person's pain point um, versus just throwing out things um, to them. I'm sorry, what was your question? Uh, about the transition of my life? No, that that was good because I think that's a, a powerful point because when you're in um, when you're in a Christian space, sometimes they give you tools uh, to to help evangelize. So you're like, okay, read this article that'll solve it. You know, <laughs> you're, you're going through. You know, they're about to convert to Hebrew ritualism, and you're like, read this article. And they're like, Christian is white man's religion, and you give them this book on early African Christianity, and you hope that something will stick from that. You don't really engage in being present or you know being with them to try to identify and listen to what their their pain points are. You're just like, this is a tool. This should fix it. And so I love that you say, hey, she gave you this video, which probably was in her training kit, like. Yeah. Yep. Give them this video and this them seeing the horror of this will wake them up. And you're like, no, I needed somebody to minister to my pain. I think that's an important thing that people miss, that it's not just about using tools. Yes, tools are helpful, but it doesn't mean that you shouldn't be present. Present is priority in yep. that situation when people are dealing with real pain. Oh. The tools assist, but presence comes first. It has to be hard head approach you have to connect with their heart first and then connect with their head yeah. um, I mean, in order to be engaging and to your point i mean that's the gospel right i mean christ being the word came incarnate in flesh and then dwelt amongst us and entered into our stories and that's what i needed and i think that's how i became a christian actually was that christ sent people to be incarnate in my life to be people who dwelt amongst me to show me a different path in a different way so i'm, I'm a, definitely with you i just i don't think that you can throw it's just very rare that just throwing information and facts that people are going to do any real heart transformational work. You have to dwell amongst people and be for people and let them know that you love them and let them know, um, again, you can oppose the sin. That's not the question. Um, but you still need to be able to show that person that you're for them and that the gospel is for them and that there is no sin that can out, um, yeah, out, that can out, um, I say there's no sin that can take away from what the blood of the cross can do at Calvary. Like just not one, there's not one at all that man has ever done that Christ's blood is not sufficient to be able to cover. Mm -hmm. That's, that's powerful and, and helpful for, for our audience to hear. When you talked about those relationships and people that kind of came into your life and helped, you know, they built relationship and that helped draw you to Christ. What, what did that look like in your life? Yeah. So, okay. So quickly. So what happened was, was that I fast forward, I go through all the drama with the, with the relationships. And then I get kicked out of high school slash drop out because I'm going through some stuff. Um, and I'm arguing with teachers. I'm an in-school suspension and I'm, I'm getting in fights. Um, and so when I get ready to leave, I'm like, wow, where should I go? And my mom sends me up to Cleveland, Ohio, um, to be with my biological father, even though he didn't raise me, um, at that time he was willing to take me in, to, um, for me to try to finish out my academic high school career there. And so I end up going, but then me and him, we have a tumultuous past, unfortunately. And part of that is um, we weren't able to see each other for years. Um, 
So I was 18 around that time, but we hadn't seen each other since I was 12 because um, of physical abuse. And so um, Child Protective Services put a restraining order against him that he wasn't able to see me. So here I am in this desperate space trying to graduate high school and this man that I haven't seen for years, we're now in this relationship where he's trying his best to restore, but I'm also, you know, pent up aggression, child, juvenile delinquent, having a hard time like entering back into that relationship. Um, even though I did desperately want an authority figure that I could trust and that I could feel safe with. And so what ended up happening was after a physical fight, another physical fight with me and him one night, the police got involved and um, we got kicked out of their apartment and we became homeless. I mean, we sincerely couch surfed. We um, didn't have places to sleep. And um, and that's what's the latter part of my academic career again in high school. And there was just that one night um, where God was so gracious to me. Um, I, again, it was after a physical fight and the police had came and I was in Cleveland, Ohio, and the snow was just snowing really hard. And I didn't have a place to sleep that night. Um, and I slept in the car. So at two or three o'clock in the morning, I had woke up and I had went back to the bench um, of the apartment. And again, and this is where my grandmother's faith carried, helped to carry me through. Um, I tried to call it to God. Um, first, I called my mom. I called some pastor people I knew. No one picked up. Um, so I called on God and I sincerely laid it out. I was like, every statistic that people said I was going to be, I am, right? I'm a high school dropout. I'm on drugs. I have no future. Um, the things I was participating in and the thoughts in my mind, I was just continuously struggling with not just suicidal ideations, but also just um, uh, just doing things in order to keep my own, um, my control. But I was tired and I really wanted to be able to release and just have that um, that weight lifted off of me. So I did, I cried out to Christ. Um, I cried out to God um, in a way in which I saw my grandmother do, because <laughs> it's the only way I knew how to call him, um, which shows you just how distant I was apart. But I said the name of Jesus several times um, and just calling on him. But I don't think it was just the name itself, but like you said, it was that head connection and then that heart connection of actually articulating with my heart that I need somebody and that I need you particularly, Lord, to come into my life and to help me. Um, and it it is crazy because if you look at the setup of my life right then and two or three o'clock in Cleveland, Ohio in the snow, there would be no reason to have peace at that moment. But calling upon his name, it gave me peace. And, it, and I, I was crying at first and all of a sudden my tears even started to dry up. And I could not under explain in my language at that point point in time, what was happening. And looking back now, I really do believe the Lord was regenerating in my heart, a new heart uh, for him. I remember right after that. And the reason why I said regeneration was because things were happening in me that were not of me. Um, I remember right after that, uh, maybe a couple hours later, my dad had walked out and um, he had said something to me and my reaction to him and I cussed him out. And I felt conviction. Like for the first time in my life, I felt sick to my stomach. And I was like, what is this foolishness? Like I can't cuss no more. Um, so it was just interesting to see like how, yeah, the gospel grabbed hold of me and all I had to do was surrender. And then God just rushed in. And um, if you said like who kind of came into my life, you fast forward a couple months later, I did struggle a little bit more with um, whether or not I was going to start stripping or whether or not I was going to get more into drugs or whether or not I was going to start trafficking drugs. But God was gracious to me. Um, he sent someone along to explain the gospel flat out. And as explaining the gospel, um, there were two campus ministers. One guy named was um, Stephen Taylor, and then the other guy named uh, was uh, Thomas uh, Campbell. Um, and they shared the gospel after a Bible study. It was random. Um, 
it was, I, I don't even know why I went to the Bible study. I was actually beefing with Thomas because he kept saying that I can be a Boosie fan and be a Christian. And I was like, uh, you don't know my life. You don't know how me and Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> I was just old. Like, I was like, don't come for me. And it was, are you still a Boosie fan though? I, 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 I'm <laughs> we're not going to get into that part. Yeah, you Faith, praise God. So, Go ahead. Yeah, okay. <laughs> but no, like, so so we were beefing and I was upset because nobody was coming for Boosie Head. And I was like, you don't even actually know Boosie like that enough to be like coming for him because he really is spiritual. Um, and so Stephen. <laughs> Stephen I'm sorry. <laughs> Go ahead. I didn't it was true. So Steve ended up saying, um, so Steve kind of like didn't engage the argument. But what Steve did, which was really helpful, was that he just kind of was like, how you doing? I was like, I'm fine. He's like, well, my name's Steve. And I was like, oh, okay, you know, this and other. And we were talking and he was like, oh, so you are a Christian. And I was like, yeah. So he actually credited me my Christianity. He didn't try to argue with me about Christianity. He said, oh, so like you, you believe in the Lord. I was like, yeah, I definitely believe in the Lord. And he was like, oh, oh. So he's like, you believe the Lord has heaven and hell. And he was like, I was like, yeah, of course he does. And he was like, oh, so you would go to heaven. I was like, again, yes, I'm a Christian. He's like, oh, so what would make you be able, if lucky you died tonight, what, how would you enter heaven? Like, what would make you able to enter heaven? And at that moment, right, you're young, I don't know what to say. Like I had an experience one time, my grandma was a Christian, like, because I knew my debt was high. And I didn't know exactly what credit me able to get in other than like, once a Christian, always a Christian. And so you internally, without him even saying it or coming at me left, like I internally felt like, man, this man may know more. So he didn't break down and say, oh, well, I actually going to hell because you don't believe in Christ alone. Um, you believe in your works. But he, what he did was he invited me to a Bible study. And then after that Bible study that night, um, they just broke down the gospel. Like, man, they broke down the gospel and they shared who Christ is and what he has done on my behalf. And they shared when I was with God in heaven and we all dwelt with him and so far as Adam and Eve. Um, and then they said how the separation of sin casts us out of the garden and how man to this day continuously groans and groans and tries to get to God, but we cannot pray enough. We can't go to church enough. You can't do nothing in order to get back up there to that harmony. And so you self-medicate with drugs and you get drug dealing boyfriends and you are impulse to propose. You do all these things in order to think that you one day can be able to be reconciled, be seen as righteous. But honestly, those are just fig leaves. They're recovering ourselves before God's presence, but they are not any type of eternal presence to be able to stand before the Lord. Um, and then they broke down that at the end of the day, in order to get back to God, it's nothing I do other than surrender, but it's something that God does, which is that he gave his son. And then they went through the gospel of him dying on the cross. Um, and I think when you know your sin, when you know the thoughts you've had, when you know the things you've struggled with, and you know all of those are now someone who's done nothing to deserve that, I think that's a difficult, um, just remembering back my first time hearing that, I think that was very difficult for me to receive because he didn't have to do it, right? But then also, like, it's, it's, almost, it's unjust. It's like, it's unjust to see him on the cross on my behalf, but yet he does it willingly. And then, of course, they go on to describe the crucifixion, not just the mocking and beatings of him going to the cross, but they describe the crucifixion. And in describing that crucifixion and that type of horrific death, it, I'm a very physical person. Um, just from my background was fighting and playing on all boys football team. It makes you feel like that's, that someone was being like that on your behalf. It makes you feel something different. Um, and the very last part, because I think I had heard the cross before, but what I did not know was the spiritual wrath being poured out upon Christ on the cross. And I think that floored me. It floored me to see the father pour out every drop of his wrath that he had for me onto his son. Um, 
And yeah, that, it, it sounds like, oh, that's just the gospel. But for me, as someone who just did not know that was for me and that was offered for me, I wanted to jump out my skin. Like I wanted to like run to that. Um, so a complete 180, like it just, it floored me. And from that moment on, it was crazy how things were taken out of my mouth. Like I had no desire for sin. I had no desire for men. I had no desire for drugs. Um, I was repulsed by the things that once fed me. Like I just had no desire to be filled by those things. And I only wanted God. And so that was a big pivotal transformational part for me. That's powerful. Um, and just hearing you uh, tell that story again and the fact that you each time I've heard you tell it, you well up with emotion um, because you're still so connected to the power of the gospel mm-hmm. and the transform transformation in your life. Um, I think it's it's powerful that God changed you spiritually and then you begin to thrive in undergrad at Ole Miss yeah. and straight A student went from hey. high school dropout hey. to a straight A student, uh, still, still a straight A student. Uh, yeah, they know about but she, she's wrong. Very anal about grades. This one. Okay. Wait a minute. You go ahead, Gil. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> but you went from high school dropout to thriving in, um, at Ole Miss and also leading a, 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 a drastic change on campus. Um, just share a little bit about that story because I think that's powerful. Yeah, man, that's wild. I don't even, we ain't got time for the full story, but it was wild. So long story short, um, I was a freshman coming into my uh, spring year and we had something at Ole Miss. If you guys from Mississippi, you know it. If you loved SEC football, you know it. But we had a, a mascot called Colonel Reb. Now who Colonel Reb was, was like this, um, this fictitious um character and he was a mascot but he would have this big southern hat he also had a cane um but the hat was like a plantation owner's hat and so he looked like um again his name is Colonel Rib, so he looks like a plantation owner in of himself so with that being said um that's just a racist symbol that it continues to perpetuate racist racist and systemic evils within the institution of Ole Miss itself but then also um institutional racism within the community of Mississippi at large. Um, and so the habit be your school mascot, um, where at least 10% of your student population is African-American. Uh, Mississippi in and of itself is, I don't know if you know it, but we have the largest amount of black people per state. Um, so it's, it's yeah, it's, it's an offense and it's a hard place to be able to thrive when you continuously are trying to like be a part of the community at large. But then the banner that you're seeing with is just this horrible, horrific symbol of, uh, of hatred and yeah, and mm-hmm. racism. So what I decided to do as freshman was just um, have conversations. It was just a, that's what I really wanted to start with. And so um, after some type of retreat um, and just really start thinking about racial reconciliation and being at the heart of what it means for a person to be, um, yeah, you're reconciled to the cross, but you're also right reconciled to your brethren. And I think mm-hmm. that for me, that was a really hard place where the Lord was trying to grow me in. So in the scriptures, it says like, you know, you cannot love, you cannot say you love the God in which you have not seen and not love the brother in which you have. And mm-hmm. that's something I really struggled with coming from such a rugged background was how to love another person. And a strong, and I think a real place for me that was difficult was um, loving across racial lines. But yet I knew um, that it was possible in the gospel. So the people who started to disciple me in my Christian walk were actually white male and female people. And so because they helped pour into my life, I knew the gospel had something to say on this issue. So again, we started the conversations. Long story short, when the conversation started to happen, 
um, school newspaper picked it up. And at that time I was on our student body Senate um, and I brought it before the Senate and I said, hey guys, um, I really want to change the mascot. And so what I'm going to end up doing here is that I'm going to do a petition and I'm going to try to get 10% of the student body to sign up to say they want a mascot. Now you have to be careful here again, because the context of Mississippi is wild. Um, you have people who have a legacy um, of the same plantation owners, the same antebellum princess women um, are the descendants and who are now my classmates. And so to talk about a new mascot, um, that makes people furious. But then also to talk about keeping the old guard makes a lot of other people really furious. And so you keep you have these like polar opposite extremes. And so what I wanted to do was have medium conversations in the middle about what it means to move forward. So when I made the petition out, I didn't say, do you want a new mascot? I didn't say, do you want to, do you want Colonel Reb to come back? I just said, do you want a mascot? Starting with the common ground. Um, and again, that was a Holy Spirit moment because um, I don't know as a freshman how you can even think of that um, compromise, but thought of it, pushed it through. And then long story short, what ended up happening out of much conversation was that I got like well over the amount of signatures that I needed. And it eventually went up to the school and the school was like, all right, Corey, bet like you got enough signatures, you got Senate support, you can push this mascot through. And I was like, nah, because for me, the biggest thing was with them was that if I did that, um, I knew that I was in danger um, and like real physical danger. I had already knew that the KKK was going to end up coming to the school um, because of me and some of the conversations that were being had around the mascot. But also a colleague of mine was having a conversation around the school song, which was um, in Dixie or with Dixie in love or something like that. But it's pretty much a, a slave um, singing how he loves a pit cotton, which ain't cool, right? So there was already this momentum gang around changing of symbols um, at the university. So I knew if I pushed just a new mascot, without getting the current rail people on board, it was just gonna cause strip division. Um, so what it, what it did, it, it kind of, um, so I didn't move forward with the new mascot without making it have a school vote, because um, I really wanted to empower students to feel like they had agency in creating a new feature. And so I was pushing forward with that, but essentially what ended up happening was the KKK came. Um, and so that was also, I think, very terrifying because here you are and you see it in history books. You know, they're still here. I mean, you're from the same state for generations. Right. My folks have been in Mississippi since the slave boats came to America. So my, for generations, I've heard of stories and you know it and you see it in history books. But I think there's a different type of fear as a black person standing before Klansmen who are fully robed um, and they have different colors, which I thought they were against color. Right. But they have like red ones and purple ones and all different type of ones. Um, but just showing that they're organized, they're, they're hierarchical. They have a structure and plan. And in some ways they have power showing up here um, at my university. And again, coming, I guess, at that point to my sophomore year, I think it was terrifying, to be honest. But eventually what ends up happening there is that um, I pushed through. I started to get more and more uh, support from the people on the ground. I didn't keep it in the highbrow. I kept people um, informed. I said, this is what we're doing to move forward. And people agreed um, that they wanted to move forward in this conversation. And so when I end up getting a vote, it's actually crazy because Save Colonel Real Foundation, they had a million dollar campaign against my little butt. So I was surprised that like, I wasn't sure how it was going to go, but I knew that like that million dollars afforded them certain privileges on the campus that I didn't have. But um, I campaigned hard. I, uh, me and a guy named Artero Rogers, he was of, I think we only had four or five black student body presidents. Um, and he was one of the four in my year. And then another uh, student, um, he also uh, came along with us and we pushed hard. We campaigned hard. And eventually when the vote day came, we had like 70 plus percent in our favor that were like, we want a new on-field mascot. 
And I think there's something about helping people and casting vision for people for a brighter and a better future, but always allowing them to be a part of the developmental process to allow for their own transformation heart. If I would have just made transformation, I think people would have came back and like rejected it. But I think because transformation was more uh, natural and organic and people were able to choose it. And I think it changed, um, yeah, how people saw it. So yeah. That's amazing. Um, I think uh, many, I don't know if many people know that about you, that you led that that charge, but that's that's an amazing work and very transformational um, and also wise way to go about things that I think a lot of people don't always use when they're trying to make big changes using that kind of wisdom to know, okay, I have the vote, but I don't have the heart of the people yet. And I can't proceed first until I have their heart, because if not, I'll create greater chaos. And so I think that was very perceptive and wise as a freshman um, and, and, and coming from your background to have that um, wisdom, I think is, is very amazing. Um, So you, you're a campus minister now uh, at uh, Ivy League, Princeton University. Um, I've been to your campus twice. Yeah, yeah. spoke there twice. Um, and uh, the funny thing is, I never thought me and Corey would be friends because when I first met her, I was like, oh, okay. Um, what do you mean? No, tell me more. What did you think? <laughs> We're not going to get into that right oh, now. Oh, okay. <laughs> 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 He's deposited his spirit in me. So I was open to loving you, you and having a relationship with you. But, you know, I understand. Anyway, we're, we're not going to get into that right now. That's not, that's not well, but um, you're doing campus ministry now. What had, what was, what drew you to campus ministry um, in the, to start doing that in the first place? Yeah, I mean, it was because I became a Christian through it. Those two campus ministers gave me the gospel. I was not looking to go into campus ministries. <laughs> I think I was going I was going straight to law school. Um, but what I found that what campus ministry has meant the most to me is because it allows me to stay kind of in the locale of where I came to faith. I think when I came to faith at 18, I'm now 31. I think those years are of coming to faith, about 13, 14 years, those years have been just uh, fueled by and continuously seeking God. And I've never really lost real fervor um, because I'm surrounded by kids who have first heard the gospel like I did and can describe their moment just 10 seconds ago. And they're like on cloud 10, you know, and they're so excited. So it makes me excited and it makes me really want to like, you know, press into my own faith because if you're leading them, you can't be lackluster. Um, So it's actually really, yeah, not, yeah, it's encouraging. And it's also making me have to like process my own, um, my own walk. So I love campus ministry because not only does it keep you young in spirit, but it also allows you to be able to connect yourself continuously to God in such a way that you have to be sensitive to um, his calling on someone else's life um, and be able to help minister to that person so they can be formed in such a way that they can glorify God within whatever path God is calling them to. Like you said, I've been at the Ivies, but I've also been at Ole Miss and I've been at uh, Michigan State. And so of all the different places I've been in campus ministry, the one thread that is the same, I think across it, um, is that people have sin and they need a savior, period. And in them needing a savior, um, once they come to that saving knowledge that they need help in being formed 
And many of them are just dying to be formed in that way. Like they're seeking, just like I was seeking when I was in the world, they're seeking affirmation um, from Christian mentors to be able to help them to form their worldview. And again, the last thing in this, I think that's really helpful for me, is like, it's not my worldview. It's what, um, it's the Bible's worldview, but also what the Lord has for them specifically. Um, so I'm not trying to make many me's. I'm not trying to make little quarries. I'm trying to help come alongside my sisters and brothers in Christ and create disciples um, that create disciples that can impact the world for the Lord. That's powerful. And and I know her personally, and she's indeed passionate about uh, making making disciples. Um, Wait, I'm sorry. Talk- I have to pause it because there's a lawnmower going out on side, and I wanted to make sure that people heard that, that you gave me a a compliment. Everyone heard that, but go, go ahead. <laughs> You're so petty. Um, this is um, <laughs> um, back to back to the seriousness of this interview. Uh, for those who um are listening and are saying, like I, I struggle with engaging this generation, Gen Z. Um, because G- Gen Z is not millennials because people just think millennials, we, you and I are millennials and we're 30, we're not 30s. Well, you're older, but yeah, technically we're, yeah. we're yes. Yeah, I'm mentoring you. Um, but anyway, I'm just, I'm just kidding guys. I'm just kidding. Um, wait. Um, so we we are millennials. Who you are interacting is Gen Z. Um, what is the difference you think in in trying to engage Gen Z that's different from millennials? I mean, I'm sure there's some big like hoopla with the Barnard report. Um, but what I can just tell you is that <laughs> <laughs> like, did you call it Barnard? It's Barner. Or Barnard? I'm at Princeton. I can say what I want to say. But no. Just- <laughs> Hey, you better edit this out. But um, but uh, I'm sure there is like some statistical numbers or like data that they're pulling that's like the drastic difference. But I don't think I knew that we were shifting from millennials to Zers. So in real time, I'm here discipling, having relationships with my students. And all of a sudden, I just see this personality change. And I'm like, what is going on? It is so different between like my juniors and up to like my sophomores and down. It's just a totally different ballgame. And so I think your question was like, um, what's the shift? Um, I can't put my finger on it in, in the most real way, but I do think that they are a little bit more attached. Like I have not seen um, students as attached as I have in Generation Zers. And I don't know that they're attached necessarily because they're insecure. That could be a reason, but I think they're attached because of their parenting. I, I heard from someone that Part of it is that they've had helicopter parents. So that then translates into the discipleship relationship with me, me is that now I become this pseudo parent figure in their life. Um, and because they're here by themselves, 18 to 21, they're trying to figure out life and the things that they would ask their parents for, they often ask me for advice on. Um, and then they want constant communication and constant engagement. And again, I'm an introvert. I can't give that. Um, so in my discipleship relationships, oftentimes with years, I'm really Um, tasked with helping them to understand their identity in Christ and understanding how to become more independent and um, sufficient in Christ 
as they engage community, because I don't want them to be so self-sufficient that they can't hear my voice or that they can't be a part of a community. Um, but yeah, I definitely want them to be able to stand on their own in the gospel, because at the end of the day, when they graduate in just two or three short years, um, you, they're, they're thrust out into the world where they're going to have to be able to be self-sufficient in order to really um, be a part of the world and engage a broken and dying world for the gospel. Um, so not being trained as much necessarily as much as they're being sent out from these campus ministries. Um, another, another quick thing about the Generation uh, Zers is that as much as they are clingy in some ways, um, they're also distant. And so it's interesting to see um, how much technology plays a part in our relationships. So if I don't text back, oh, God, help us all, um, because they they see that as the same thing as someone walking past someone and not speaking. Whereas in my mind, um, again, I think I, I am a millennial, um, but being from Mississippi, I do feel kind of 10 years behind in some ways. And so I'm even more it's difficult for me to understand the technological um, attachment parts, but if you're looking to minister to them, I think you want to keep in mind those attachment issues and detachment issues um, that kind of kind of surface in that age. You should just tell them to call you because that you don't text back, but oh, that's, that's not for the podcast. I thought we were being serious. But yeah. Um, I'm back to the two camera setup. Uh, oh, you look good. By the Go ahead. <laughs> you got it. What would be uh, your final words to our audience? Uh, this has been a really helpful conversation, but what would be your final words to our audience about just testimonies um, and the power of testimonies and engaging with people? Anything we've talked about that you might want to like tie up with a bow that you you feel like you want to to speak a little bit more on? Yeah, I don't know if there's anything necessarily to add other than I do think that us sharing our testimonies are probably the most transformative way in which we can engage someone with the gospel. Um, mm -hmm. I think a lot of times in some cerebral context, you think, oh, let me be like scripture verse, scripture verse. Let me tell exactly what this article said by so-and-so. Um, and while those things can be helpful and they need to be background noises in your own head to be able to articulate the gospel so you know when you're stepping out of line and you know when you've gone too far, I don't think those should be the, our leading conversational points when we're trying to minister and connect with people. I think, again, it is incarnational. It is being with people and dwelling amongst them. And seeing the way in which Christ has done it is that he talked to people um, for where they are and um, and engaged exactly where they are. And so when I think about the story of the woman at the well very quickly, um, I think I resonate with her because Christ met me exactly where I was as he met her. He used the elements of that day, which where she was, was water. Um, and then in using those elements, he then got to a deeper question about him being the living water. And then after she had talked with him and he had told her all of, of what he knew for, for her, it says that she goes out and she tells of the story of who he was. And so I think that connection, when she did that, if you remember in the text, it says that then people came back and they wanted to be able to hear this for themselves. And so I think, again, us telling the story of what God has done for us and then going out and telling other people, then people are going to kind of want to come to church. They're going to want to come to the Bible. They're going to come to worship services to hear it for the God themselves because it's just been so transformational for you and your living testimony. Um, and the very last thing is I do think that we should, again, invest in mentorship. Um, I'm thankful, Lisa, to have you as my mentor. <laughs> Amen. You're so petty. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
How can people find you on social media? I don't do all that. That's good. That, that's good. <laughs> she really doesn't. She really doesn't. Um, well, thank you so much uh, for for being with us today, Corey. Um, thank you all for listening to another episode of the G3 Project podcast. Um, you could definitely listen to all our past podcasts on our website. Make sure you subscribe on iTunes, um, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever podcasts are are streamed. And um, also get our new curriculum through Eyes of Color, um, a contextualized guide to help you know what you believe and why. You can also get our um, take our online course. And also, if you want to become a monthly financial partner, you can. All of that is available at g3project.org. Remember here at the G3 Project, we're helping you know what you believe and why you believe it. God bless. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the G3 Project podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune into all our past episodes at www.g3project.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Remember not only to subscribe, but also rate us. That helps us to gauge how we're doing and how you're enjoying the show. And it gives other listeners some ideas about the show as well. So thank you so much for tuning in. Also, remember we have our Bible engagement app in partnership with Back to the Bible to help you get better engaged in the Bible every single day. You take a survey, it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you Bible verses based on those. So it's a great app. You can download the app by searching in your app store or Google Play, searching G3 Project, and it'll be right there for you. So thank you again. Remember, if you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver, you can do so on our website or by mail. Just go to Jew3Project.com, hit that donate tab, and you'll see the option to mail in a gift or give online. We appreciate you, and I'm so, so thankful for you. God bless, and remember, here at the Jew3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.